Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick, of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also from the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we are wrapping up this week by talking about Minute 105, which begins with Theo excitedly opening cases of bearer bonds, and it ends with Hans Gruber wishing to talk to the FBI. Would you say he's opening the boxes joyfully? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, Ode to Joy seems particularly appropriate. Mm-hmm. And there are so many boxes. He's just opening one after the other after the other. I feel like the Nakatomi Corporation can be a little bit more compact with their storage, because this doesn't seem to be a huge vault, but it's really not that big of a deal that they have everything spread out, I guess, because it's still a fairly new vault from the look of the building being under construction so much. I'm wondering what the standard practices are for keeping things that are so valuable so close together Mm -hmm. and how you package them in what amounts you package them in. I think, well, it's kind of hard to say because the presence of these bonds at all and so many in one place, I think immediately is dangerous. But, you know. Yeah. I guess it's only smart to package them in several different boxes. Uh, by the end of this minute, we learn they're $100,000 a piece. So each piece of paper is worth $100,000. Yep. So considering how many are in each box, which we don't, at least not in this minute, we don't really get a great sense of how many are in each box. But each box is worth a lot of money. So I'm just not sure that it matters. <laughs> <laughs> if, if a thief steals one, it's still very damaging. Yeah. So I'm not sure that it matters how many boxes there are. The thing about this vault is that these bearer bonds are the least interesting looking thing. Oh, definitely. On offer. There's way cooler stuff in that vault than pieces of paper. I didn't go through and look up what everything is in this vault. It appears that there's some samurai armor. There's at least one statue that appears. I would say is South Asian in inspiration. And the third terrorist in the room, who turns out to be Kristoff, the French one, walks by that South Asian inspired statue and he flicks it and says, (laughs) and the subtitle says, he also walks past a painting, which I semi immediately recognized. Mm -hmm. I knew I knew the painter. I just couldn't quite put a word to it. Yeah. My first guess was Matisse. And then I looked up Matisse and discovered that I was very, very wrong. Yeah. I would have guessed Rembrandt, but I'm not an art major or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I really don't know that much. The most that I know about art is from the old... 70s or 80s board game masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it turns out it's a Degas and it is from 1873 called Ecole de Dance, which is uh, dance school yep. in French. Uh, admittedly, I had a little bit of trouble finding this painting because I couldn't think of the artist's name. Mm-hmm. So I just did a general search for ballerina painting. So I found another guy, another artist who also does a lot of work in the ballerina category. And for a little while, I thought this was one of his paintings, an artist by the name of Guan Zeju. So if you like this painting and you like Degas, then you should check out Guan Zeju. Check out his work. 
because it's also very, very nice. I'm a little surprised that Kristoff just walked by a Degas. You would think that he would recognize the work of a countryman coming from France himself, that he would see and appreciate a Degas in person. You know, I was about to counter with a man in his line of work couldn't possibly have cultural appreciation. But then again, his line of work is thievery, not terrorism. Mm -hmm. Even though I still consider this act a terrorist act, his line of work is thievery. So he should see a Degas and go, oh my gosh, that's a Degas. That's going to be worth a lot of money. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I love how... They have this plan to steal just the bear bonds. But there are so many other things in that vault that they could take. Yes, but price per pound? Uh, that's a good point. A lot easier to move a bear bond than it is a priceless Degas. Yes, and I, I really have no idea how much a Degas is worth, but... I imagine laundering a Degas is a lot more tricky. The art world is usually very aware of where things are. Yeah, and I think there are plenty of people out there willing to buy priceless works of art on the black market. The point of the bear bonds is that they are easy to cash out. Mm -hmm. I know we went over the idea of a bear bond in our previous set of minutes, I feel like an eternity ago. And yeah, the, the point is anonymity, which is also kind of our problem with it. Why did they have this yeah. incredibly easy way to steal currency? What was Nakatomi doing with so many untraceable bearer bonds? Yeah. While there are many other interesting things, more interesting things to look at, practicality-wise, it's all about those pieces of paper. Mm -hmm. The Degas is currently housed at the Kokorin Museum in Washington, D.C. Cool. So people can go see it there, huh? Yes, they can. I'm willing to bet they just used a poster for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of set dressing. Even, yeah, even a poster put in a nice frame looks fantastic. Yeah. You saying that reminds me of a movie. Do you remember when Rowan Atkinson came out with the Mr. Bean movie? I remember that he came out with a Mr. Bean movie. I've never seen it. So in the context of that story, he either works in a low-level position at an art gallery or he constantly frequents an art gallery. And basically, he gets sent to America to do something revolving around Whistler's mother, the painting. And through Mr. Bean-esque antics, he ends up critically destroying Whistler's mother. And so he takes the original home with him, and he replaces the original with a poster. And at the <laughs> unveiling of Whistler's mother, he leans over to an associate that he's been working with throughout this movie, and he reveals to this person that it is not the original painting, that it is actually a poster. And there is shock and horror on that person's face. And at the end of the movie, it shows you that Mr. Bean has returned home with Whistler's mother in its destroyed condition, and he's mounted it above his fireplace. In its destroyed condition. That's funny. Yeah. Also reminds me of National Treasure, mm. where he pretty much does the same thing. The fake Declaration of Independence is very handy. Yes, it is. Goes into the gift shop, buys a fake one, and just swaps it out. Yep. Which is so absurd. 
I love it. After we see Kristoff walking through the vault, we get another quick shot of Theo opening all of these cases, and then we cut much further away than we've gone this entire week to the KFLW TV van driving out of the darkened section of the city, probably because they need to find a power source if they're ever going to broadcast. I, wouldn't a TV van have their own power source? I mean, isn't that the point of a TV van that they can go anywhere to report the news? So wouldn't they have their own power? The thing about TV vans, yes, they have their own power in the form of batteries. But if they are going to do a sustained broadcast, then they need to tap into an outside power source. Okay, but in this case, the news is in a blacked out area so they have to leave the place where things are happening Mm -hmm. to do their job and that's absolutely counterintuitive yeah but it's better than them suddenly losing power in the middle of a broadcast okay like news vans draw a lot of power yes not only do you have to run the camera and the microphones but you have to run the transmitter and all of the broadcasting equipment inside the van every spring the local public access channel comes over to the college where i work and they broadcast live graduation and they will set up cameras and they will run cables all over the place and it's very convenient for people who can't make the trip to graduation that day they can call up the access channel's website and watch it live and they draw a lot of power to the point that We have to give them their own circuit. We have to set aside a breaker specifically for them because if we lump them in with the lights or the sound system or the vacuum, it draws too much power for that one breaker to handle. So we have to give them their own dedicated power source for them to run everything. Okay. I don't buy it, but okay. If you want to come to graduation with me in the spring... No, 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 no. I buy that. That's a completely different situation than what's going on here. This is a mobile news van that is supposed to be able to go to the site of where news is and report the news. It can't do that. It's also 1988, though. And aren't they drawing their power off the engine? I mean, that's where the electronics in your car are drawing their power from. Well, they're drawing power from the battery, which is being replenished by the engine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they do it all the time. Why can't they do it now? It's a really good question. Yeah. Because they're not doing the scale. They're not setting out a bunch of cameras and recording hours and hours worth of constant footage Mm -hmm. that needs to be transmitted and shown live. I don't know. I just don't buy it. I don't I don't understand why they're leaving. It's also a rather out of place shot for every all the action that we've been following this week. It is. And because we're just doing this five minutes, we haven't been analyzing up till now. So honestly, I don't remember the last time we saw the van or what it was doing or if it's an important part of the story. I don't remember. We didn't analyze that part. Mm-hmm. So for us, looking at this week, this feels very out of place. Yes, it does. I think that's why it's annoying me. <laughs> Plus, you don't like it when things are not cut and dry. No. From this insert shot of the KFLW TV news van, we go back to... The police line, where Al is leaning up against a cruiser. He's still got the the radio in his hand, but he's watching the FBI walk by, and he says, well, what are we going to do now? Arrest them for not paying their electric bill? Which, mm, Yeah, it's not a very good... He could have he done better. Dig. But yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Kind of weak. Yeah. And Agent Johnson doesn't even 
snark back at him. He just says, we've shut them down, we let them sweat for a while, then we give them helicopters. Because the terrorists have done that thing where they ask for helicopters. Have they? Yep. Okay. And so Agent Johnson, Agent Big Johnson, says, yeah, right up the butt. Although he doesn't say butt. (laughs) So he picks up one of those big clunky cell phones from 1988 and he says, this is Agent Johnson. No, the other one. Which is a pretty fun joke. Yeah. I like that it diminishes his power. He's we're, He's been working really hard the last few minutes to puff himself up and to gain authority over the people who are there that he's working with in very aggressive and annoying ways. So this little pushback on his authority and his power is very nice. Yeah. I'm just thinking about examples where I've seen that before, but all of them are are very specific and niche. I don't want to have to tell a whole story. Okay. So Agent Johnson continues, I want that air support ready to lift off in five minutes. Then he says, dang right, fully armed. And after the mention of fully armed helicopter, we get another shot of Al and he looks really concerned at the mention of this. And then Agent Johnson tells the person on the other end of the phone, we're on our way. So the terrorists have asked for helicopters. They want to use those helicopters to fly away. It's standard terrorist activity. You take over a building, you demand something. In this case, they demanded the release of political prisoners or something like that, and then they want helicopters to escape. Agent Johnson here is going to give them helicopters, but on those helicopters are going to be armed policemen or army reservists or air force people, whoever is providing these helicopters, they're going to have guns. And so they're going to ambush the terrorists. Al, I think, is particularly worried about the civilians who are in the building and the collateral damage that Agents Johnson have shown that they don't care about collateral Mm -hmm. damage. We just went through this sort of thing with the power where the only thing that matters is that the terrorists are hurt or inconvenienced. Nobody, well, no, that's not true. The agents don't care about the other people who are still at work, working on Christmas Eve. And how many of those people, because the power goes out, they can't get their work done. And because they can't get their work done, they can't go home to their families. And how many people live in on that grid and now on Christmas Eve have no power? Mm-hmm. And they didn't care about any of that. They were willing to sacrifice all of those other people to try and hurt the terrorists. Which, you know what? If you need to cut my power so that you can thwart some terrorists, I'm okay with that. But I would at least like you to acknowledge that you're sacrificing an awful lot of people's night Mm -hmm. to do this. It was just that they weren't considered. Yeah. And they're planning on doing the same thing, but this time it's life or death. They're doing the same thing with the weaponry. They're just going to go in there, guns blazing, killing the terrorists without considering the collateral damage. Mm -hmm. It's a very risky maneuver that they're proposing here, and Al knows it. So we cut back into the vault where Theo is flipping through a stack of $100,000 bearer bonds. Each one of these individual sheets of paper is worth that much money. Now, remembering back to our conversation in, I think it was week six, 26 through 30, where Hans Gruber said the figure that they were looking to steal was $640 million in negotiable bearer bonds. Now, if each page is worth $100,000, that means that there are 6,400 sheets of paper. Now, I may be a simple country lawyer, even though I'm not, but I'm pretty sure a 
legal size piece of paper, which is eight and a half by 14 inches, is more or less the size of a bearer bond. It's larger than a normal sheet of paper. It's big and important looking, and it's about what I would estimate the dimensions of these pages that he's messing with to be. I feel like that's reasonable. I think it's more than reasonable. That's the very definition of a legal piece of paper. Mm -hmm. That it's a legal piece of paper is a specific size. Yeah. So if you take that dimension and then assume that that's the dimension and that all of these pages are just simple 20 weight paper, something Mm -hmm. that you print on normally. Yeah, I kind of think that that's not a good assumption. Well, for the sake of argument, we'll say it's simple 20 pound paper. Okay. The way he's flipping through it, it doesn't look like it's any heavier, but the weight of a ream of legal paper is somewhere around six and a third pounds. And so if you take 6,400 pages, total that into reams, it's about a little under 13 reams of paper. And given the weight of the paper that I'm assuming the bonds are printed on, if you take all $640 million of bonds and put them together in one box, that box would weigh about 82 pounds or 37 and a half kilograms of just the paper, not including any of the boxes they come in or what you're carrying them in, just a little over 80 pounds of just paper. And that is entirely reasonable for one person to carry. Oh yeah. When I worked at an office supply store, I was in the copy and print center. And a lot of the times I would go over and I would grab a box of 10 reams of paper off the shelf and I would carry it around like, you know, you do. And really it's a case of paper plus three more reams on top of that. It's very manageable for one person to do. The tricky part is when you have to carry it around through stairwells and loading it places and whatnot, in which case, you know, you want a trolley. But when you think about Stealing things that you are going to have to move. In the grand scheme of things, 82 pounds of paper is a whole lot easier to manage than, say, a whole vault full of gold bars for something like the Italian job. Yeah, and half the plot of the Italian job is about how hard they are to move Mm -hmm. and the logistics of getting them from A to B. Yeah, you could literally split... 82 pounds into a couple of briefcases or a duffel bag or even just a hearty sack could hold all of that very easily. Oh, yeah. And of course, as Theo is flipping through these pages, he is just he's doing that thing where he's laughing, but he's doing it in a very breathy way. It's the kind of thing that if I was hearing it in a podcast setting, I would try and edit it out because it just sounds awful to my ears (laughs) but he's just beside himself with how fortunate he is in this moment to be handling this much money essentially and the subtitles say that he says oh yeah but it's more like a oh yeah it's like (laughs) oh god just awful i'm gonna have to listen to that while i'm editing Yep, and you're not going to be able to cut it out. Nope. You have to leave it in. And of course, Theo turns back and Hans is there by the door and he's beaming at the success that they are experiencing. And Hans turns and he picks up his radio and he activates it and he says, I wish to talk to the FBI. I think Alan Rickman kind of can't help himself. That's just the way he talks. I don't think he's putting on a voice. (laughs) I think he's just talking. And that's why Alan Rickman is so delightful. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he does have such a unique voice. I really wanted to find Alan Rickman doing impressions of other people, mm-hmm. purposely sounding different. 
Okay, that was like the hardest thing to search for on Google because Google only wanted to show me people doing Alan Rickman impressions, which I am not interested in. I'd rather see actual Alan Rickman. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't find uh, him doing impressions of other people. Yeah, I did find, however, and we'll we'll throw it up. We'll we'll throw up a link on the uh, the limo. What's our page called? Die Hard with a Podcast Listeners Limo. Thank you. So we'll throw it up on the listener's limo page, a a video that he did with Jimmy Fallon, where he did part of the interview inhaling helium. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty great. The only instance I can think of Alan Rickman putting on another voice is that one scene in this movie where John catches him and he does his whiny American voice. That's right. He does. It's awful. Oh, it's it's so great. Oh, that's what he thinks of us? Oh. Yeah. unsavory (laughs) so down at the police line agent little johnson walks over to agent big johnson and hands him a radio and special agent johnson has to put down the giant brick phone that he was talking on so he can pick up the radio and that's where it cuts off we don't actually get to hear agent johnson talking on the radio that's something that is just gonna happen next monday when a new group comes in and takes over to keep us moving towards the end before you read that so this is our last day our last minute being part of the die hard minute project And I just want to put out a personal thank you to everyone who has listened to us this week and has listened so far in the movie. This has been a seemingly daunting project that I am so glad that Jim O'Kane undertook, that he picked up the idea of it and ran with it and marshaled us all together. And I just want to say, good job, Jim. Thank you for putting this together and allowing us to be a part of it. If you would like to hear more of us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage, madmaxminute.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at dieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, I wish to talk to the FBI. Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5.